My fellow Americans, today I want to update the world on our efforts to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. In 2015, the previous administration joined with other nations in a deal regarding Iran's nuclear program. This agreement was known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. The fact is, this was a horrible, one-sided deal that should have never, ever been made. Therefore, I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. The global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. Hello, everybody. We're back again with another episode of Globalization Cafe. And in this episode, we're talking to two fantastic experts on one of President Trump's latest, um, how do we say this, perhaps most intriguing foreign policy decisions. That is, before we got to the North Korea summit and the steel and aluminium tariffs. In fact, we're talking today about the Iran nuclear deal, or at least what used to be a nuclear deal with Iran. First of all, I spoke to friend of the show, Simon Palomar from CG, who listeners might remember from our really great episode on Putin. Hi, Simon, how are you doing? So, on the Iran deal, we know that, that uh, uh, Trump has um, declared that the, the US is no longer uh, going to recognize the JCPOA. Um, we just had a speech from Mike Pompeo outlining some it's apparently impossible conditions for Iran to meet. What, what's your take on this? Why has this happened and, uh, and what does it mean? Yeah, I know that's a, it's a great question and we could spend hours just talking about, you know, why this did happen. Um, so to provide, you know, a synopsis of the reasons why the JCPOA was not able to hang together, I think there's a, there's a few things you have to look at. And not all of them have to do with Trump. There is one theory out there that a big part of this was the current president's animosity towards the former president and the ability to take away one of his signature foreign policy accomplishments. And other presidents have done things like that in the past, gone after their, their, their predecessor's successes. But I think you really have to go back to, you know, what the JCPOA did, what it was designed to do, what it wasn't designed to do. And it, and when you look at that, that I think highlights a fissure in American foreign policy and national security circles. So the joint comprehensive plan of action you know, fundamentally was structured as an arms control deal. It wasn't designed to change Iran's foreign policy. It wasn't designed to uh, 
undo the 1979 revolution. It wasn't designed to, um, you know, bring Iran into the uh, global economy. Well, I shouldn't say that. It was to an extent designed to do that, but only on specific circumstances. It really was designed to put some verifiable limits on Iran's uh, nuclear science and technology activities. And really the, the fundamental ones here are the uranium enrichment activities that Iran was conducting and um, the redesign of a, a research re reactor, which the, the design that Iran was working on would have been a very good reactor to produce plutonium with. And it was designed to put a 10 to 15 to 20 year freeze on various activities, enhanced monitoring from the International Atomic Energy Agency. And it was designed by the United States and its allies' time. Because Iran, despite being a, a, a signatory and party to the Non-Proliferation Treaty on Nuclear Weapons, evidence is overwhelming that in the 1990s, early 2000s, it was, there was a, a serious effort housed inside um, the Defense Ministry to build nuclear weapons. So the JCPOA, when Barack Obama entered into negotiations with the government of Iran, brought the Russians, the Chinese, the Europeans along with them, it, the goal was to put a limit on Iran's fully legal nuclear activities. It looks like they'd stopped the nuclear weapons program at this point, but we're still pursuing civilian activities that could be repurposed for a nuclear weapons program if they so desired. It was meant to put a pause to that, give the United States and its allies considerable time to figure out what's the long-term solution. It wasn't designed, like I said, to undo the revolution, to patch things up between Israel and Iran. It wasn't designed to do any of these things, which have been major irritants in the bilateral relationship between Tehran and Washington since 1979. So that didn't satisfy everyone in the United States, obviously. And there was still a continued, there was a debate then and a debate now, both amongst Republicans and Democrats. It's not a partisan debate per se about what should the United States' policy on Iran be in the long run? Is it regime change? Is it containment? Is it, you know, some other third alternative? It, 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 engagement's probably not it. The JCPOA did not settle that debate. And with uh, Obama out of the White House and with uh, supporters of the JCPOA in a, in a weaker position in government and outside of it, I think the time was right for opponents of the agreement to dismantle it. I don't mean right in a normative sense, but right, the timing was right for them. This was their opportunity. So there are other factors, you know, um, Saudi Arabia's rapprochement with Israel, for example, that, you know, certainly made this more likely. But I think the fundamental problem was the Obama administration negotiated a very good arms control deal, but it, it was an arms control deal. It wasn't something that settled the United States' Iran policy. And that meant when the stars aligned domestically, there was an opportunity to dismantle it. Okay, that's that's really fascinating. Let, let me ask you two questions that relate to this question of arms control. Sure. Um, first of all, you say it was, a, it was a very good arms control deal. 
critics of the deal have said that while it limited the progress towards nuclear arms, it actually enabled, uh, I suppose, the, Iran's use of other uh, Hezbollah, for instance, and other proxy forces by allowing them more money and, and, and so on. And then I suppose the second part of the question is, if the US is uh, is uh, treating this arms control deal in this way, what does it suggest about potential future arms control deals, for instance, with the obvious one, North yeah. Korea? Yeah, both, uh, both, again, good questions. And that first one, the point that, well, Iran has agreed to freeze and roll back certain activities for, you know, a 10 or 15 year period. And in exchange, they're... Um, getting access to global oil markets again, um, some frozen funds are being repatriated or released. Doesn't this give uh, the Iranian Ministry of Defense, the Guardians of the Islamic Revolution, other paramilitaries in the country, doesn't this give them suddenly an influx of cash for operations? Yep, certainly there's, there's some evidence that that did in fact occur. That being said, um, before we saw sanctions lifted on Iran as part of the, the JCPOA. There was tr- there was all sorts of evidence that Iran was committing heavily to uh, supporting the uh, Assad regime in Syria, for example, um, sending personnel, um, sending cash or extending credit where possible. Um, there's even evidence of um, you know, sending uh, discounted oil to the government for various methods. Iran has tremendous interests in maintaining influence in Syria, tremendous interests in keeping Hezbollah tied closely to it. So it's by no means clear that had sanctions continued, that Iran would not continue to prioritize those policy goals. You know, they they continued to prioritize them when they were under sanctions. This is a situation where putting a pause and a verifiable pause on Iran's nuclear activities, well, this then gives you one less thing to worry about as a diplomat, national security advisor. It gives you one less thing to worry about when you're figuring out what's then the solution um, to thwarting Iran in Syria or Lebanon, if you are concerned about that and you want to achieve that. Um, we have to remember that, you know, Iran is not a pariah regime like North Korea, for example. I mean, Iran does have friends in the world. Iran is a, uh, you know, culturally and historically important country in um, the greater Middle East. And uh, it's a con- economy has become less oil dependent over the years. I mean, overwhelmingly, you know, oil revenues still bolster the Iranian, that's still the foundation of the Iranian government's operating budget. But they have a, you know, a large young population, well-educated. Uh, country has tremendous potential and its neighbors know that. So you look at the cooperation between Iran and Russia in Syria, you know, their interests align, they work together. You want to thwart Iran and Syria, well, then you also have to figure a way to thwart Russia, essentially. So the idea that it would have been better to simply stick with the sanctions regime as it stood and 
allowed, which essentially allowed, gave Iranian conservatives the argument to continue the nuclear activities as they were, you know, the hedging activities, you want to call them that. I don't think it, it's a clear, you know, slam dunk argument that uh, Iran's wholesale foreign policy could have been changed if we had just kept sanctions on Iran. And that's, that's essentially the implicit argument, I think, that critics make when they say, well, this money has been freed up for ballistic missile programs or for uh, for Hezbollah or for the Quds Force. Yep, they, they, you know, budgets are fungible. Nevertheless, this did put a pretty serious pause on um, Iran's nuclear activities, which they've continued to maintain for you know the last couple of weeks since the announcement, which is a good thing. Um, but I, I don't think it's entirely clear that... Uh, you could have kept sanctions on and used them to change every facet of Iran's foreign policy behavior, which is what we're really talking about. Now, the second question, what does this have to do with North Korea? Will this affect, I mean, that's the implicit question that a lot of people are asking or explicit. Will it affect North Korea's views of the United States going into this, um, this rather shaky looking uh, proposed summit on uh, June 12th in Singapore between um, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. It's certainly going to be on the minds of North Korean policymakers and diplomats. They, they have to think about this possibility that uh, maybe the United States, uh, they'll say one thing and ultimately they won't be bargaining in good faith. An important distinction, though, is that um, the JCPOA was never and still is not a legal agreement. It's a political agreement. It has no legal status. It is not a treaty. Uh, that was done for domestic political reasons um, by the Obama administration. They were fairly confident that they could not get ratification in the Senate if they brought something like this to the U.S. Senate. And the U.S. Senate has to ratify um, any treaties that the United States enters into. The Trump administration has said, actually, we're looking, we might be looking at a treaty with North Korea. That's kind of how we prefer to go about this. They, they've said that now that they are going to re-implement sanctions on Iran, that any any settlement with Iran, it will be a treaty. It won't be uh, another political agreement, which made it relatively easy for the president to rip up. Um, so the North Koreans, and whatever they uh, agree to, if they agree to anything with the United States, which I still think it's a it's a fairly far-fetched prospect of getting much out of a, a summit. Um, but there are some, there's a potential upside there. They might simply say that anything we agree to has to be uh, structured as a treaty, needs to be a legal document. It needs to go through the American Senate. Um, we need to know that the U.S. president will be bound by his own people. You know, that's that's one distinct possibility. But more generally, it's something that they, the North Koreans have to be thinking about. And uh the North Koreans, I think, realize that the situation is different. Um, Donald Trump, you know, he was able to, and as, you know, anecdotally, has been able to scare off European companies right now because he can reimpose sanctions. Nobody's doing business except for, you know, maybe the Chinese, maybe some firms in Singapore, Malaysia. Very few people trade with North Korea. Those who do probably do quite well because they're selling, they, they, it's, it's a seller's market, put it that way. But there aren't, the United States is 
slowly running out of sanctions tools that they can impose on North Korea. You know, perhaps they can further tighten the screws on oil and distillate imports, for example. But at a certain point, they can only squeeze so hard. And, uh, you know, the Chinese government will, you know, block UN attempts at sanctions and will find ways to soften those sanctions if they think they really do threaten the stability of the the regime there. So it, it certainly makes the American position going into negotiations with the North Koreans more difficult. And I think that the, uh, the shot that uh, Kim Jong-un fired across the Americans' bow last week, saying that, you know, this talk of Libya is being comparable to North Korea is ridiculous, a non-starter, and could sink the whole thing. And that American America's formulation of denuclearization is we give up everything we have and you give us very little in return. No, no, no. We're talking about mutual denuclearization or global denuclearization or an end to the South Korean-U.S. alliance, something like that. Um, suggests that you know the North Koreans are aware of the the differences between the situations. They may have that ability to deny the president something he really wants right now, which is uh, you know this summit with Kim doing something that his predecessors didn't do. So reminding him that well, you look kind of like a a shady bargainer with the Iranians. You basically tore up an agreement that they were following. Well, you did that to us. We'll walk away, no problem. Okay, well, that's really interesting. <clears throat> I um, I t- certainly get the a similar impression that uh, I mean, I suppose no one no one would uh, would think you were you were mistaken if you if you never trusted an American president again, really, given given that given that simply his successor can just roll these things back. But <clears throat> let's let's just zoom out then, just to a, a final question, because last time we spoke, we talked a lot about Putin, yeah. and uh, uh, it was a very insightful discussion. Um, this this the end of the the American involvement of the JCPOA, as you mentioned, is not the end of European involvement in the JCPOA. Yeah. So once again, under Trump, we have a split between the United States and its traditional allies. It's got closer to some allies, Israel and, uh, and Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned, but they're more like the United States is more like a patron yeah. to them more than a, an ally, supposedly. So. If we look at U.S. policy on climate change, on the JCPOA, on trade, uh, you could name a few others. We have ever more splits between, well, within the Western alliance, even NATO, for instance, you know, threatening, you know, suggesting that the U.S. or implying that the U.S. might not be interested in defending Eastern Europe and, and so on. What What's going on here? We, we, we've got the shadowy figure of Putin in the background. Is What's your take on all this, and, and what's the future of the of this? Uh, the I suppose we can call it broadly the Western Alliance. Yeah, that's kind of the the sixty four million dollar question that a lot of us are struggling with right now. I'm fairly optimistic about the prospects of the Western Alliance going forward, but that doesn't mean there won't be some hiccups, some speed bumps. Um, you really have to look at this on an issue by issue basis, I think, to get a really clear picture. On Russia, for example, we've seen a lot of convergence in Europe over the last 
you know, let's say three, four years um, since um, since Russia annexed Crimea and began supporting insurgents in eastern Ukraine. You know, er- early on in this this current period of estrangement between Russia and the West, you had some. You had, I'll put it this, how to put it diplomatically and uh, tactfully. You had some European civil servants and politicians who were fairly convinced, look, this is a, a an aberration on the part of the Russians. They don't really have a long-term plan. Things will be back to normal fairly quickly. Hasn't turned out that way. And, you know, we've seen the events uh, this spring in the United States kingdom with the, the poisoning of um, Sergei and Ilya Skripal. We've seen uh, allegations of, of Russian, lightweight Russian meddling in other elections. The Europeans are quite, you know, seeing eye to eye, I would say, on the challenge that Russian foreign policy poses right now. And there are some exceptions, you know, the Nord Stream gas pipeline, etc. But they've gotten much closer. In the United States, they have a lot of allies. U.S. Congress, House of Representatives, the Senate is essentially of the same view. And um, people like uh, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis is of that view. Uh, Mike Pompeo seems to be of that view. Um, so there is a check on the president there. And arguably that check is sometimes it's stronger, sometimes it's weaker. So, you know, Russia, for example, perhaps will muddle through. Climate change, you know, that's a particularly interesting question because right now the the global regime that we've kind of all settled on for for dealing with climate change again, it's not a legal regime. Paris, the Paris Agreement doesn't oblige anybody to do anything. So Trump's withdrawal from it is as much symbolic, useful for domestic purposes as as it is, you know, serious. Um, and again, in the United States, there are checks on the president power in that regard. State governments control a lot of leadership. Uh, municipal governments show leadership. State governments, you know, have some fairly substantial regulatory powers in this regard. Um, you know, California has kind of paved the way there. So there's a possibility that, yeah, again, we can kind of muddle through. You know, trade is, is troubling and the JCPOA is troubling because this really does put the European Union and the United States on a direct collision course because the United States you know, doesn't trade with Iran. It didn't trade with Iran before uh, the JCPOA. It didn't trade with it during. It hasn't really had a commercial relationship since the Islamic Revolution. So the United States really does have to sanction other parties for doing business with Iran. So this is the sort of thing where it could make for some you know, serious uh, clashes of interest. There's threats that the Europeans will look at implementing blocking regulation, which would essentially tell European domicile corporations, ignore American law, just go ahead, do it. We're immunizing you. Now, the thing is, they can't really immunize them. The United States can still cut off access to the American financial system to these firms. But, you know, it's a political statement. So, you know, in the long run, I'm fairly confident that the Western alliance, the Western consensus, 
you know, will survive. And I think maybe a bit of a scare on things like trade, paying more attention to people whose lives and jobs are disrupted by by trade. You know, if that's one of the policy outcomes that that comes from this current this current state of affairs, that might be a good thing. But I'm fairly confident the Western alliance as a whole will survive. But there's going to be some fraying at the edges. It's going to be it's going to be, you know, hard for um, all of America's post-war partners to completely trust it. There's going to be, I think, that renewed skepticism about the United States. We're going to see an acceleration, and we are seeing an acceleration of um, European efforts, for example, to develop a common defense policy, to um, build out the European External Action Service a little bit more, and develop a, a more full and thorough foreign policy for Europe. Um, one of the silver linings, though, is uh, this also creates an impetus for Europe to um, look to East Asia, to the democracies there. So South Korea, Japan in particular, um, perhaps Taiwan, though that's of course dicey, and really start looking at, you know, building that kind of trans-Pacific, you know, if we call talk about transatlantic relations, that trans-Pacific relationship as well. And that, you know, maybe uh, it's time to really broaden those strategic uh, economic military partnerships to, you know, like-minded countries on the other side of the world. Yeah, no problem, no problem. I'm Beth Mulamani. I'm a professor at the University of Waterloo and the Balfoy School of International Affairs. I'm also a senior fellow at both the Center for International Governance Innovation in Canada and the Simpson Center in the United States, Washington, D.C. Two of my recent publications, uh, one is called uh, Arab Dawn, uh, the demographic uh, dividend that youth will bring to the Arab world, published by the University of Toronto Press, and another book um, published by Indiana University Press called Beyond Tahrir Square. What's your reaction to the to the situation? What, what do you think caused this? Well, I think what we saw from the Trump administration was really a determination to uh, dismantle all of the major projects. Um, and accomplishments of the Obama administration. And of course, this is really the signature piece uh, on terms of foreign policy. And of course, there's the element of the fact that it wasn't an international agreement. It was in many ways uh, not codified in law. And so there was an opportunity there to dismantle it. I think it also um, is about the fact that uh, Trump is uh, really surrounded by some neoconservative hawks, many of whom who've um, been committed to not only, I would say, dismantling the JCPOA, but frankly, regime change. And we saw that uh, quite evidently in some of the comments of John Bolton in the past, uh, Pompeo as well, and even Giuliani. Uh, these are people who surround Trump at the moment. They're uh, far more likely to be interventionists. And I would say where Steve Bannon and others who were probably the quasi-isolationists of the bunch are, are no longer the more viable ones. Uh, in the administration. So that's all pointing to, um, I think, uh, some of the, the, the reasoning behind uh, uh, Trump's recent actions. So, um, you, you, so it seems that your outlining is very much an ideological uh, uh, 
reasoning behind this move. Is there? Does this translate into a strategy? You mentioned regime change, but is that a is, is that an actual strategy, or is that just a sort of a, a, a wish? Do you think, but on behalf of uh, people like uh, Bolton and and uh, and the other neocons? You know, the way I read it is, I think it is a strategy. Um, but however, I do think that although perhaps Bolton and others want to see regime change, I think they understand that uh, Donald Trump is not willing to really sacrifice uh, troops and uh, money to uh, put boots on the ground and, you know, really kind of do this uh, a la the style of what we saw in 2003 in Iraq. I mean, he's not interested in regime change or nation building. He made that very clear on the campaign. I think that's probably his instinct and probably won't be pressured into doing that per se. However, uh, much of the neoconservatives conservatives around Trump believes, and I think probably truly believe, that uh, Iran is uh, ready to collapse from within. And all you need to do is suffocate the regime economically. And the lifeline, if you will, of the regime has been the JCPOA in their argument, and uh, it has um, allowed the regime to survive. In other words, it was the, the, the lifeline to the regime and would have collapsed if it hadn't been for Obama's uh, you know, um, foreign policy misadventure in their mind. So I think, you know, there is a there is a conviction there that it is about to crumble. Um, they, I think, have overstated the, the the amount and impact of protests on the ground. Not to say that there aren't any, uh, but I think that they uh, truly underestimate the resiliency of the regime and uh, how little I think mass or public support there is uh, for any sort of U.S. inspired. Um, regime change efforts. So I think there's a there's um, there's a perception that this is um, about to happen, and they just need to provide a tipping point in the JCPOA, um, or at least um, ending the JCPOA would help bring that collapse uh, to fruition. That's really interesting because it, it would. I mean, it's, it would seem to me that that it, when the US acts in such an obviously sort of unreasonable way to go back on its word. That it might sort of strengthen the hardline elements of uh, the Iranian regime. Um, there's all, it's also the the notion the the fact that there were protests while the JCPOA was in force. It, it seems to seems to be a, a strange sort of strategy that that you would uh, uh, you know act so outlandishly as to uh, you know withdraw from a, a, a deal that you agreed to uh, in order to. You know, bring about the collapse of another uh, of 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 the Iranian regime. Is is do do you think this is a good strategy, or is this just a is just as bonkers as it sounds to me? I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, overall, it's bonkers uh, because <laughs> I think they're underestimating how resilient the regime is, and more importantly, one only needs to look at Venezuela, one looks at Cuba. I mean, you can isolate you can isolate these regimes all you want, but it has often happens is, you know, uh, the masses of people end up suffering the most and the elite um, continue to be well-fed, as, as we see in Venezuela, for example. So, you know, it just doesn't work. Uh, most would uh, point out that economic sanctions don't tend to topple governments. Um, you know, in the case of um, of Iran, I think the other thing that's foolhardy about the approach of um, the regime, or I should say the, the American government, is that somehow if they uh, reinstate, um, you know, multilateral sanctions that they would be able to to really suffocate the regime. Um, you know, first of all, they're not going to get the multilateral agreement that they had uh, at the time of Obama, simply because, uh, as we see from the Europeans and, of course, even Russia, 
China and to you know India and sort of another important uh, trading partner of of uh, Iran and Turkey. And they're just simply not going to go along with this. Um, they they think the Americans have overstepped um, and backed out of a very function well functioning deal. So, you know, there's there's very little logic um, to their strategy, but I think it it under it underlies how um, how much how limited their understanding and knowledge of the way Iran works. Uh, part of where I think the neocons have um, mistakenly gotten their their uh, their knowledge from more information is from the MEK group, which is the Mujahideen Halak, who's a which is a um, you know quasi Marxist anarchist uh, type um, organization that um, you know has spoon fed uh, the neocons this idea that um, not only is the regime um, failing, but you know there is wide support. For you know the Americans to come in and liberate the Iranian people, you know that sounds like again for many of us who remember 2003 all too well, like uh, Iraq all over again. So it's um, it's unfortunately um, true that much of these neocons have bought MEK's logic, and uh, I don't think there's you know there is there is some merit to the the you know the concerns uh, of the neocons, uh, which is that of course. Um, money has been going to um, foreign misadventures. Uh, the Iranian regime is a nemesis to many countries in the region and has intervened in countries like Iraq, uh, Lebanon, uh, Syria, of course, and uh, Yemen to a lesser extent. But, you know, I think that um, they see those as such existential threats to themselves that, you know, they would much rather starve their people than, um, than you know, to, to decrease their, their spending on those uh, foreign policies and adventures. And so I think this is just completely um, misguided by the American administration and the neocons around uh, Trump and others to believe that somehow this is going to get the regime to change its behavior, or for that matter, that somehow by removing the JCPOA um, and the lifeline of of funds and money that was going to uh, the Iranian regime, um, that they would be able to stop Iran's uh, foreign policy behavior. Well, that's a really fascinating answer. I mean, uh so let, let, let's let's broaden it out then to the region. You mentioned that uh, Iran, uh, this is one of the criticisms that was floated uh, a great deal. And as he's mentioned, there's some legitimacy to it that, that Iran, will, uh, I suppose from the US perspective, continue to behave badly. You know, uh, Hezbollah's uh, 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 playing a major role in the Syrian civil war, uh, direct support for Assad, this uh, role that it's uh, playing in Yemen and so on. Um, to, so uh, you, you 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 seem to suggest then that the from an Iranian perspective that these actions are from come from a position of uh, a sense of insecurity on part of Iran. But one of the loudest critics of the deal itself was uh, Israel, of course, and Benjamin Netanyahu. And then, of course, you had the the perhaps quieter but also very significant critics of uh, in the UAE and Saudi Arabia. If uh, who who also positioned their argument as one that uh, a new that this deal added to their insecurity so is this how how significant is this regional sort of i suppose this is a sort of a security dilemma how significant is this regional security dilemma in undermining the uh, uh, the jcpoa i think it certainly played into it uh not to suggest that um you know those uh, those three countries would have been enough to to sway the neocons 
but you know, certainly it helped them um, you know, help justify it. I'm, I'm afraid that on the Saudi and the UAE front, um, you know, being able to to pitch to uh, Trump that you know you have the support of two uh, wealthy Arab countries uh, resonates with him, um, and so that obviously feeds into. Um, his feeling that he's on, you know, not quite on the right side of history, but in some way has regional support. Uh, I mean, I think Israelis are a real wild card in this, of course, because we know that, you know, both the military and the intelligence sector in Israel are not keen on uh, Iranian regime change per se. Uh, they, of course, also don't want to see uh, Iran get stronger, but they're also very cautious and I would say almost skeptical of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, that's another wild card in this. I think that Netanyahu um, is probably itching for war more so than his security intelligence establishment, which to me makes things very, very problematic and worrisome, uh, specifically in the sense that uh, while I go back to that that argument that I don't think uh, Trump would be so inclined to start something militarily with Iran. I mean, he's convinced, you know, or others have convinced him that this can be done, regime change can be done by suffocating Iran economically. Uh, I think if the Israelis were to take on the Iranians directly, um, you know, they will start a war, perhaps, that frankly the Americans will then have to come in and finish on behalf of the Israelis. And that is something that I think uh, should keep uh, you know the American military up at night as well. So that's another avenue, another arena to think about. And of course, what's happening in Syria is a shadow war, basically between the Iranians and the Israelis within Syria, and where the uh, military um, establishment in uh, Israel may be keen on taking out Iranian assets in Syria to prevent them from going to Hezbollah. Say, uh, I think we've seen enough evidence that shows that perhaps Netanyahu is trying to convince his own uh, military generals that going to the source, i.e. going to Iran directly, might be more fruitful. Um, and that, again, the dynamic of seeing all of these, for lack of a better term, characters, you know, really kind of gunning for war is um, is a toxic mix that I think with the perfect storm, with one mismove, with, uh, you know, one misunderstanding, so to speak, um, things can spiral out of control. Well, that's a, that's a frightening prospect. Um, so let, let, let's just let's, let's let me just ask you the the final yeah. question then. If the, if this is a potential sort of toxic mix uh, in the uh, in the medium term or the immediate term, how do you see this this dynamic developing over the long term, over the, the next ten to fifteen years? Is it in any way sustainable? How do you see the situation developing in the next ten to fifteen years? I think the best case scenario would frankly. Um, you know, see some real reform and change within Iran. Um, you know, I think certainly um, it, it's not it's not going to be done by hardening the position of the hardliners. The way it's done is by allowing the reformers to convince the you know autocrats in their society that uh, warming relations and you know engagement and normalization um, is good for everybody, particularly for the economy, and that we see change from within. Um, of course, you know, I think many Iranians want rapid change because, you know, these autocratic and archaic rulers uh, are stifling uh, for, um, you know, for young people, for you know, progressives and so forth. But I think uh, many Iranians recognize that it, it's, it's not going to happen, um, or at least let's say less blood would be shed if it's done 
slowly through change overall than through some sort of regime change, especially one that is uh, orchestrated from uh, from the outside. So unless you know we have the conditions for internal uh, bottom up kind of revolution that is peaceful, I am afraid to say that the prospect for um, Iranian stability is not good. Um, now that's not to say that uh, we shouldn't try our best to support uh, reform-minded movements. I think there's a lot of opportunity to help uh, young people, to help um, educate them abroad, for example, scholarships. I mean, engagement, I think, is more empowering um, to those opposition forces than isolation or making it more difficult for them to travel. That's really not going to make things better. But, you know, I think you're, you know, the larger challenge here is that um, the neocons really do feel that it's going to crumble from within and they just need to suffocate it enough economically and it all collapse and mysteriously turn over into a liberal democracy overnight. Well, you mentioned uh, 2003 a few times and we've seen how well those dreams work out. That, that's really great. Thank you so much for, your, for, for those answers. I really appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. Take care. Well, there you have it, everybody. Still, numerous questions about will the Europeans plus China plus Russia be able to save some semblance of a deal? Will perhaps the Iranian regime collapse? And the Iranian people, perhaps inspired by the prospect of leaders like a Donald Trump and a John Bolton and a Mike Pompeo of their own, create a wonderful new Jeffersonian democracy in the Middle East? Will anybody ever trust an American president who makes an international agreement ever again? So far, nobody knows. But thank you very much for listening. This has been Globalization Cafe. I've been your host, Dr. Philip Bleachnow. And join us again soon for our next few episodes, where we'll be discussing the topic of academic freedom. <laughs>